ladies, we're going to get started in just a couple minutes. If you want to wrap up that last uh, question you're on, we'll get started. I have to admit, I'm excited to see everyone here tonight and a little surprised because I know it's Kids Camp Week and some of you have been busy all week in the morning at Kids Camp. I see Jennifer Rogers back there. She's been on the E-team sharing the gospel with lots of kids. Has it been a good week, Jennifer? Yeah, everything I've heard is that it's been a great week. And so if you were free tomorrow morning, please come on campus. You um We'll be blessed. I'm excited that we are going to get to continue in our study of Colossians. I know last week I felt like I was standing in front of the screen and everyone's trying to look around me to write. So I thought I would just sit down and maybe we could have a, um, a chat tonight about the book of Colossians. Um, I know some of y'all know I'm from South Carolina. And when I moved out to Texas, um, there was something a little weird to me. There was a town called Waco, which I know that if you're from Texas, you've heard about and known a lot about, uh-huh, especially Baylor Bears, and um, being from South Carolina, it was not a place I was familiar with except for one thing, and so it was super weird for me, because every time I saw this signs for Waco, it was just kind of this weird thing, because in South Carolina, the only reason we'd heard of Waco was because of David Koresh, and so for years, I would see these Waco signs, and I would just I would feel like this weird, I'm like, what is this? And I know for those of y'all who um, remember back in the 90s, he was a, a, a leader of a religious cult, and unfortunately there was a huge um, fire and a lot of things happened and a bunch of people died. And then in response to that, some people were so mad at what the federal government had done that um, then the Oklahoma City bombings were in some ways some people's wrong response to some anger. And so... Just that one individual and the leadership that he had led to a significant amount of damage and death. And so I think that from that one example as well as many others, we all know that leaders, for better or worse, have a lot of impact. And so just um, to have a picture of some of them, I've put some folks up here, some of the faces or maybe all of them you'll recognize, people that... Some of them hold a official position of leadership and have a lot of influence. Some of them are just people who are leaders in certain areas and people follow. And 
starting kind of up in the top left, we have Abraham Lincoln, of course, thinking about his leadership and how different our country might have been had he not been the leader um, in the Civil War and some of the things that he stood for, some of the positive things that have come out of his life. Next to him, we have Steve Jobs. Most of us have in our purse or in our home something that Steve Jobs had something to do with. And it was so interesting. One of the things that he said about leadership I thought was so interesting. He said, people don't know what they want until you tell them. So he didn't really do focus groups to find out what people wanted. He came up with things and then told people this is what they want. And I've got an iPhone in my purse. I don't know about you. So thinking about him and um, how he was very intentional with his leadership. Um, Mother Teresa, obviously the people she directly influenced as well as the people that just know of her and the influence she had next to her. I wanted to kind of put up there just different areas of ways that people lead. That's Taylor Swift, a very famous country artist. And if you were a teenager, you would for sure know who she was and be able to recite a lot of her lyrics. And so uh, I also thought it was interesting. I saw an interview with her one time, and I know some people who are famous and maybe athletics or music kind of play the, I don't mean to be a leader. I'm just doing my music or my sports. I don't, you know, people aren't supposed to follow me, whatever. She made a comment I thought was interesting. She said, when I get dressed in the morning, I think about a million people. And she's right, because a million people or more are watching what she puts on. She, uh, I'm not saying she does everything right or wrong, but she's aware that the influence that she has as a leader. Certainly George Washington, we've got Osama bin Laden up there, you know, Kate and William, thinking about, again, some of them in official positions of leadership. I think as you look at this screen, you can see positive and negative things. Martin Luther King, Tim Tebow, certainly someone people are looking up to. Adele with all of her awards, who doesn't know some words to an Adele song. Just thinking about how the lyrics that people lead intentionally, unintentionally. Facebook, uh, many of us have a Facebook account, Mark Zuckerberg there. The influence he's had on social media and what we know and uh, about each other and the amount or lack of secrets we know no longer have. Um, Oprah Winfrey, certainly have the Kardashians. Um, reality TV, um, one of them is usually on the face of a magazine. It was interesting, and again, I'm not at all trying to be mean, but it took a while for me to find a picture where uh, there wasn't showing too much cleavage or leg to put on the screen. So just by virtue of the fact it took a while of me flipping through a while indicates um, the influence directly and indirectly that they have over people. Um, Adolf Hitler, George Clooney, just thinking about just the folks on that screen, I think we all see the impact that leadership can have. As we've been working through the book of Colossians, we've kind of looked each week at some different things that influence us. If you've been here both weeks, that's fine. If not, I'm going to kind of give you just a little synopsis so you can know where we are and what we're doing. Colossians is a letter that was written from Paul and Timothy to a group of Christians. Um, Paul was in prison, and so he was sending this letter to a group of Christians, and it was a pretty good group of Christians. It wasn't a group of people that were doing a lot of intentionally, overtly terrible things, but some things had come up, and Paul was concerned, and he wanted them to, in light of the things that were around them that were going on in their culture, he wanted them to experience an abundant life, 
to not be persuaded and deluded by some of the arguments that were coming at them. He wanted them to be encouraged and knit together and to have this abundant life. And so he's written this letter with some things, intending for them to take the things he's written in this letter and apply it very directly to their culture because things were coming at them and he didn't want them to be moved. We've looked at a lot of different things as we've studied so far. Last week specifically we looked at different religions and kind of compared what Paul said to some of the different religions that we run into and hear about in our culture because just as Paul wanted the Colossians to experience the fullness of abundant life and to not be pulled away by the culture, he wanted, though he didn't know us by name, he wanted those that came after the Colossians to experience that as well. And if just looking at that screen, probably you can tell what we're going to talk about tonight. And that is that we are all impacted positively or negatively by leaders. Now, I've put this, some pretty famous ones up there. I kind of wish I'd been able to sit around your table and hear about the parents and bosses and teachers and teachers and different people in your life that had influence over you. Looking back, some of them probably positively and some of them negatively. Now, here at Christ Chapel, I'm glad to say we have a lot of wonderful, fabulous leaders and that if you serve in leadership at Christ Chapel, there have been some people that have gotten to know you and um, lovingly kind of vetted you to make sure that you would do a good job in that position of leadership. But you may or may not always live here in Fort Worth and be able to go to Christ Chapel. And quite often, I'm sure you, as I, are getting requests to, do you want to partner with this ministry or do you want to come be a part of this Bible study? Or how do you know if that leader, particularly in a Christian setting, is a good one or not? How do you know if they're trying to lead you toward good things or bad things? Sometimes, how do you, how do you know about that church or that organization or maybe your your child in another city or a friend in another city is saying, what church should I go to? How do you determine these things? How do you know who and what you should listen to? How do you know who and what you want to give your money towards? How do we know that the leaders that we are putting ourselves in a position of following or supporting are leading us towards good or towards evil? Because we see someone like David Koresh leading people towards destruction. Certainly, we've been around leaders that we kind of look back and go, ugh, that probably wasn't the best. And then there's some that have influenced us positively. So how do we know as we walk forward what types of leaders we should follow? Additionally, how do we know what types of leaders we should be? Because like it or not, whether you realize, like Taylor Swift, that you need to think about a million people when you're getting dressed, I don't need to think about a million people, and you probably don't either, but there are some people somewhere that are watching you. And the influence you have can be positive or negative. So how do we know which leaders to follow? How do you vet something and know what matters? And then how do you lead people, hopefully, into good things? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I don't know about you, but that's something that I kind of would like to know about to make sure that I am not in unintentionally pulled in a direction that at the end I go, man, I really didn't want to end up here. So let's um, pull out um, your Bible. I'm going to read for us the passage, and then we are going to go back through and very specifically and strategically kind of look at some things so that we can be wise in the leadership that we follow and wise in the leadership that we use to influence those around us. 
Colossians 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5 is where we're headed. Here's what Paul says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We are going to walk back through this passage and put things under three categories. One, just what are some things we observe in Paul's leadership? What are observations that we can make of godly leaders? Second of all, what is Paul's, what is the leader's goal and his purpose for his followers? What does the leader want the followers to experience or do? And then thirdly, how does he go about accomplishing that? What is this leader's methodology? These are things that we can look for. Now, before we even get started, I want to remind you there are no perfect people and there are no perfect leaders. We can always nitpick. I could spend days telling you things about my life that I should do different and different things about leadership. I'm not sharing this with us so we, that we can go around and nitpick and start pointing fingers at things in people's lives. None of us get this perfectly. But I want us to be able to kind of look at things and look at people and evaluate. Okay, does this look like something I should put myself and my family and my friends and be a part of? Or is this something that I might need to say, hey, that may not lead a place that I want to go? So let's walk back through it. In verse 24, we kind of start off with a bang here. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We see Paul choosing to joyfully suffer for others. Now, as we walk through each of these things, I'm also going to try to pick out some things that we might need to watch out for, meaning the flip side of that. What are some ways we might see or hear things in leaders that we go, huh, that may not be the best. I'm not sure that lines up. And this phrase here probably eliminates 99% of the leaders we know of off the bat. So <laughs> most people are probably not leading and their motivation being the joyful suffering for others. So we're just going to eliminate 99% of the people we know right off the bat. This one, I think, uh, as we think about, I mean, there's just so many things we could talk about, but certainly there are many leaders who... Um, do not joyfully suffer for others. In fact, we can see them joyfully profiting off of others. Um, those who are presenting um, suffering as if something is wrong with you, you've done something wrong and you deserve this suffering, 
if Paul is actually experiencing the suffering joyfully, implying that it's a good thing, if it's a leader that is teaching us, hey, you need health and wealth, and if you just pray this prayer, or if you just say this, or believe this, or do this, everything's going to go great. That's just something that we need to have a red flag go off and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm not sure that that's going to lead us in a biblical direction. We also see here that he is joyfully suffering. Now, I'm not saying that every leader or any one of us in the room is going to love every ounce of suffering that comes our way. That's a little bit nuts. But Paul has tracked into something that he's recognizing, and there's a whole lot of theological truths under here, that joyfully suffering for others is something he's glad to do. Interestingly, quite often, if someone asks me about a church or an organization, I have kind of, and again, this is just for me, if for you it's different, that's fine, um, three things that if I can access on their website or a sermon that I can listen to, there's three, if I'm, three sermons or three places on their website that I'll go. And this is true story, not just for purpose of this. The first one is if they have some place that tells their vision, their values, in either sermon or whatever kind of form. I will go and look, what are your visions and your values? I'll listen to the pastor and hear what they say or read that. Secondly, I will go certainly and look at their beliefs and their doctrine. You know, what do you believe? Specifically, if I listen to a sermon, I'll almost always pick a sermon. I'll just go through their sermon archives and I'll pick a sermon that's over a passage that I consider is very important theologically, central to the gospel, maybe something in Romans or in Galatians, and I see... Are they teaching through the Bible? Is that what they're referencing? Are they saying key things? That's what I do. But if I can only look at one thing or listen to one sermon, this is the third thing I do. Honestly, I go look for a pastor's sermon on suffering. Because first of all, if they haven't addressed suffering at some point recently, I'm a little bit probably concerned. And I want to hear what they have to say about it. I want to hear what they believe about suffering. I want to hear how they talk about God in the midst of suffering. When people talk about God and are expressing things about suffering, a lot of things about God come out. What they think about who he is, how he is or isn't involved in the suffering. Suffering is a key thing for me. If I only listen to one sermon by a pastor, if someone's asked me about the church, I'll go to their suffering sermon and I'll listen to it because it will tell me an immense amount about what they believe about the character of God and how life here works. So the first thing we can see about leaders and leaders we want to follow, they're not perfect. They're not necessarily doing cartwheels when the suffering comes, but we see that they're joyfully suffering even on behalf of other people. Interesting. Again, we've eliminated 99% of the people we now have as potential leaders, and so we can move on. Um, what's the next thing we see? I put kind of suffering well as a methodology because I think if you suffer well, people listen to what you have to say. Um, I think that as I go back and read Paul, he went through suffering, he understood it, and he has some credibility with me, so I'm inclined to listen to people who have suffered well. It's just something I kind of look out for. Okay, what else have we got? This is general, and we're going to come back and talk about this more as we move through the passage. You'll see that Christ is mentioned a lot. Jesus is mentioned a lot throughout here. So characterized by that person and by their ministry 
is it's very Christ-centered. There's a lot of talking about Jesus. Something that I think we have to be careful of, again, just a little bit of a red flag. Um, if I'm listening to a leader or an organization and they're constantly talking about me or about a self-focus, again, obviously who Jesus is applies to me. I should respond and obey that. But if the center of what they're talking about is me, most of the time, for me, that's a red flag. That's something I kind of go, maybe I need to watch that a little bit. We see Paul throughout here talking about Jesus a lot. Interestingly, I was um, talking with um, Casey Taylor, who's one of the worship leaders here at Christ Chapel, and I had asked him, I said, um, are there any songs that you as a worship leader that may be popular or that you've run across in worship conferences that you kind of steer away from, that you choose not to pick for the congregation to sing? And I want to read for you um, what he said to me. Do not feel badly if this is one of your favorite songs, because often <laughs> I will sing songs and I just change the words in the middle, so I'm not intentionally dogging you this song if this is one of your favorite songs. But this is a song that Casey chooses not to use in worship, and it is called um, Above All. And the phrase he has in there is, um, like a rose trampled on the ground, you, meaning Jesus, took the fall and thought of me above all. And he says, I don't do it because it makes us the center of God's attention and affection. God's glory is at the forefront of Jesus's interest. This song to me is dangerous for worshiping self. Just thought it was interesting. If something is above all about me, Casey kind of said, hey, wait a minute. Above all, it's about Jesus and it's about God's glory. Just something interesting for us to think about as we're in our world and we hear leaders talk and we consider where to go. And it, it's also good to look at ourselves and think, okay, what am I talking about? Because you are leading and influencing other people. Listen to yourself maybe a little bit. I need to do this too. How does who we, what we talk about and what's come out, what, what's characterizing our lives? Is it Jesus or is it ourself? Okay, let's keep going. Um, something else I love that Paul says here. We're still in verse 24. He says that he is enduring this suffering for the sake of his body. That is the church, the body of Christ. Paul has an experience a love for and a commitment to the church. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, I feel like the church gets a bad rap. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of the rap the church gets is legitimate. Um, there are things that the church or Christian organizations do wrong, and by no means do I want to justify that. But as I'm talking to even a parachurch organization, at least for me, and certainly they're a part of the body of Christ, but I kind of think... Um, and even, I don't know if you know this, as we look for mission endeavors to partner with, one of the things that we look for here at Christ Chapel is, if we're a part of this mission experience, do they have a connection to the local church in the place we're going to serve? Uh, many parachurch organizations do that, and so I'm not at all suggesting that we don't, uh, I'm not at all dogging parachurch organizations. I'm just saying, is the leadership of that organization willing to fight for the church. It's not, it's not a perfect place, but it is the place that Jesus came and died for. And so leaders um, that we want to follow are people that have a love for and a commitment to the church, even knowing that it's not a perfect place. All right, 
Let's keep going. Another important one is we see Paul in verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Paul views his ministry as a stewardship, as a responsibility from God that was given to him for the sake of other people. Certainly, um, and again, I don't want to make like we're nitpicking because we all have pride, but as you're hearing a leader talk, um, uh, do you see and hear within them a humility where they recognize that God gave them every talent and opportunity and gift they gave them, not just to make themselves look big and amazing and awesome and people to know them, or do they recognize that everything that God's given them is just something that he intends for them to use for the sake of the kingdom? Is that how we view what was given to us? Or do we tend to look down on other people that may not have a skill set that we do and kind of think, why can't they just step up and do that better? Is there a humility and a recognition that God has gifted and talented all of us in unique ways and that we just need to be stewards of what he's given to us? Maybe he's, he's given us all a different amount of talents, a different amount of abilities. Do we just humbly accept that and say, I want to use whatever was given to me to serve? It's just me to be a steward of what God's given to me. He could take it away tomorrow or he could still give it to me tomorrow. And so I just want to be faithful with what he's given me. I love it when I hear leaders. Um, I remember hearing Billy Graham one time just talk about people saying, you know, he said, there are people who've done things that have touched less numbers of people people far less well-known, he said, that have been more faithful with what they've been given than I have. There was this humility that says, I and we have all been given something, and are we just being faithful with it to use for the people that are around us? Good things to think about. Ways to kind of look at um, ourselves, look at the leaders around us, and just kind of say, hey, let me just want to make wise decisions for myself and for my family to kind of see... Um, where I want to follow, to kind of imagine um, what we're looking at. Okay, this next one is one of my favorites. Um, I'm excited. Um, we're going to move into a little bit of the methodology. As we're looking at leaders, and again, sometimes an organization might have a slightly different purpose, but as we look at leaders, do we see behind them what we read in verse 25? His purpose is to make the word of God fully known to make the message known, all of it. Not part of it, but all of it. And as I thought about us women, as women and how sometimes we can end up in a position of unintentionally maybe following someone for a tad bit without recognizing, hey, wait a minute, um, I realized that sometimes um, we are tempted to follow the people that... Um, touches our emotions in a way that engages an emotional response. And that's not all bad. It's not all bad. But if you walk out teary and crying and are remembering that story, but it had nothing to do with the word or message of God, or you can't remember what it was, that's probably not a good thing. And I'm not saying emotions are bad. They're good things. But we can easily be drawn away by the person that's going to tug on our emotions in the right way. And that is something we need to be careful of. Additionally, I think we have to be aware of things. And 
everything our culture tells us isn't bad. But if you think about it intellectually, um, in our culture, it's not really politically correct to say there's only one way to heaven, and that is Jesus Christ. Well, in other cultures, that's not weird culturally at all to say there's only one way. Their entire culture is based around the fact that even within their government, it's there's only one way. No, it's not Jesus, but there's only one way. So I think we also have to be careful of making sure as we're listing, does everything that person is saying or that organization stands for lining up with what my culture teaches? Because, you know, some things probably are going to line up, but some aren't. And as we're discerning listeners, we need to say, if that person, if everything they said sounds like something that could have been in a campaign speech, I might need to back up and say, hey, wait a minute, just to think about. I'm not necessarily saying it's for sure wrong, but if everything you've heard from a leader matches a campaign speech, it's probably not consistent with making the word and the message of God fully known. Now, there are many ways that this is done and accomplished. Um, I think one way that we make sure the word of God is fully known and the message is experienced, and again, not the only way, but if you're at a church or with an organization or in a Bible study that just teaches through books of the Bible sometimes. Because when you teach through books of the Bible, you don't really get to decide what you're going to talk about that day. I didn't really get to decide what I was going to talk about today. These were the verses that came next in the book of Colossians, so what are we talking about? We're talking about leadership and looking at these characteristics of leadership. Um, And frankly, when you teach through the book of the Bible, you get to some parts that really step on your culture, that kind of don't jive with your natural emotions. (laughs) You know, there's some things that kind of step on your toes a little bit. When we are teaching through books of the Bible sometimes, we're going to have a greater opportunity for the Word of God to be fully known. I'm not saying you can't have a topical study that's making the Word of God fully known. It's just one of those things you can kind of look for that kind of says, hey, if that's going on, then it's probably um, something that maybe is intentional about making the Word of God fully known. Um, The next thing, I think that this is what is also super cool about the Bible, which is not on the screen because I didn't see it until today when I was reading through the text, which is what I love about the Bible because it was my last run through and I'm like, that is the coolest thing. I did not notice that until now. That's why I like the Bible. And if I'm teaching or reading Colossians in 10 years, I'm going to be noticing other things in this passage. So from my final run through, here is something that I think is fabulous that is not on the screen because I'd already sent it to Garrett and he's already put it up there. So how about this? This is cool. Now, verses 26 and 27. Read this with me. Paul talks about the mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations but has now been revealed to his saints. It's described in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that sounds a little muddled, but let's think about this. When we look at redemptive history when you're looking at the whole Bible God created a chosen people it was Israel it was the Jewish people and there's been known for a long time that the Messiah was coming and when you're reading through the Old Testament quite often it's this chosen people and God's saying don't interact with them or them or them or be careful of them and he's protecting and loving this chosen people well what becomes known that Paul is talking about here is and it's always 
shown to some extent through the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus makes it really clear. Jesus didn't just come for this specific Jewish people. He came for everyone. He came for the Gentiles. He came for the people that the spiritual Jews, a lot of them, didn't like, didn't want to have to be a part of it. He came for everybody, regardless of age or race or nationality or anything. How great is that? And what an important thing about leadership. Are the leaders constantly targeting this elite group of only specific people? Are only certain people good enough? Certain people talented enough? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't target some people for the sake of using them in accordance with their gifts. But are leaders always and only around this special elite group? That would be a problem. Because Jesus came for every type of person. And we see it mentioned here, and I did not notice it until today. And I kind of got chills as I'm like, this is fabulous. More things to learn about leadership. Are the leaders and the organizations open to all types of people? Or are there only certain special people that can come in? I thought that's pretty cool. That's why teaching through the Bible is fun, because you learn all lots of great things. Okay, how you doing? Learning some things? Kind of looking at your own life and kind of going, huh, wait a minute. i got to step back and kind of check my own self. Am I viewing what I've been given for myself? Am I, as I'm talking to people, making the word of God fully known? Or am I only telling them what I think they want to hear? What might make them feel good at the moment? Am I only... Some things we can all learn here, right? Okay. Let's keep going. Certainly another one of my favorite things that we get to look at. Coming back to the Christ-centeredness we talked about, Paul is saying, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. As you are talking to um maybe a leader or learning about an organization or a Bible study, are they talking about Jesus a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot? Teaching about Jesus a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And if they're not, probably something you shouldn't be a part of. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is who we proclaim and who we teach. And I think, again, just because I'm kind of trying to pick on maybe our cultural weaknesses as American women, I think most of us in the room, because you're here for a Bible study, are probably good with that teaching Jesus part. You're probably okay with that. Now, let's just, as women who probably like to be liked, if you're like me, the people pleaser, great with teaching you about Jesus. However, the people pleaser in me does not want to warn you about anything because you might not like me. So lovingly, how are we doing at saying the hard things in love to people that knowing Jesus calls us to say? If you come to this Bible study for six weeks and I say absolutely nothing that steps on your toes or makes you want to reevaluate, I deserve an F minus because that means that I am picking and choosing the things that I think you are going to like me to say and that means that I love me more than I love you, and that I love what you think of me more than I love the Bible. F minus. If you look back on the past year and can't think of anything you've lovingly and gently said to someone that has been a little bit of a warning to them. 
had a conversation with someone this week, and um, it was not really my favorite because I want to do the ones where we're all smiling and hugging and crying afterwards, and they want to send you a thank you note. Um, <laughs> this was not one of those conversations. But um, the word of God was clear. And what Jesus says and who he is was clear. And so hopefully, with great humility and tenderness, um, there was some warning in there. And I'd like to say hopefully, most of the time, couched in the context of relationship. I'm not saying that we never just warn someone outside the context of relationship. But Paul had had relationships with these people, even though he'd never met them face to face. He knew about them. He prayed for them. He engaged them. He loved them. They loved them. Within the context of relationship, there's loving warnings. And how glad I am that I can think of something that a friend said to me in the past month that hurt my feelings a little bit. But I went home, and it was totally right. I am glad that she loved me enough to give me a warning and a blind spot in my life and say, hey, Cass, let's kind of think about that. And I'm like, huh. You know, in the minute, you, a little bit of you wanted to defend yourself, but you kind of sat for a minute and had to honestly admit, she's right. I need to go respond to that. Again, kind of trying to pick out ways that we can be in our own leadership um, unintentionally or intentionally weak in ways that we can be pulled astray because we just want to feel good and walk out and give each other hugs and cry and retell the story. And if that's how it goes, great. But sometimes Jesus has very direct things to say because he loves us and we need to be warned. And so I want people that lovingly, gently, in the context of relationship, bring the full message of God to warn and say, hey, Kath, look out. And I'm like, well, thanks. I really, I really needed that. Okay. Deep breath. Lots to think on, huh? All right. All right. We've been looking at kind of what the leader looks like, their methodology, um, suffering well, making the word of God fully known, and proclaiming Jesus. Key, key things that we want to be about. How great. There are hundreds, literally, of leaders on this campus this week that have been telling kids all week long about Jesus, making the word of God fully known, using what they've been given as a stewardship for these kids, many of which they don't know and may never see again, because of a love and commitment to the church, Christ-centered, perhaps great sacrifice to their time and energy at their home, because they um, are really leading well. Incredibly, incredibly grateful for that. Okay, let's keep going. So, what does the leader want to accomplish? accomplish. What is this leader's goal? What should our goal be for the individuals that we get to influence? Verse 28 tells us that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone mature in Christ. Um, not perfect, even though I wish I was, but knowing who Jesus is, loving Jesus, walking in love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and um, that maturity. And so again, as I kind of prayed and thought, okay, what are ways I need to pick on us? What are ways we, we might be led astray? My guess is that um, if you have kids or aunt or aunts, uh, if you're an aunt um, and get to influence people, um, we have a, a cultural picture of what success looks like in our society. And it involves certain jobs and not certain jobs. And it involves 
certain paychecks and certain homes and certain cars and not others. And um, would you rather have, um, and again, a CEO, have your kid or your neighbor be a CEO of a bank with a lot of money and a lake home that didn't care anything about Jesus? Or would you rather have um, a kid or a neighbor or a niece or a nephew that worked fill in the blank as to whatever you think of is the lowliest job, which I hate that we even think of jobs that way. We shouldn't. But would you rather have one that has that job and loves the Lord their God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's real easy to give the answer in this room, but I think real quick about going to your high school reunion and telling what your kid does and, and do a little heart check on that one. Yeah. Um, I knew of a parent who, when their kids were young, and, you know, kids always want to say, this is what I want to be, that's what I want to be, whatever. And he would always say, you can be whatever you want to be, but he would always make them say, after I want to be a whatever, he would say, I want to be a whatever who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Didn't matter what the blank was, but what it was. Are the leaders that we're following most concerned about our maturity in Christ or something else? And as we lead, are we more concerned about the maturity that those individuals have in Christ or what our culture has designed as success? I kind of think that's a hard one, if I'm honest with myself. Okay, let's keep going. Um, something else that we see in the life of leaders um, maybe not a, a fun one for ourselves, but it's just true. Um, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling. Toil, struggling. Um, leadership is great, and leadership is not always fun and convenient, and between eight and five, and um, it's costly. I think if we're leading well, um, there's times we get tired because of it, really tired. There are times when you answer the phone at an inconvenient time. There are times when you rework your plans. There are burdens that you carry on behalf of other people that, to be honest, I just wish I didn't know. I would rather not have to know that. Um, there is a toil and a struggle to leadership. And um, not that I, not that there aren't times that we need to stop and say, hey, it's my Sabbath, I need to rest and spend time with my family. But when I look at leaders that I respect, um, without complaining, they have given up things to be able to do that. And uh, that's how it should be. That's how it should be. Um, these individuals are toiling and struggling. However, with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. It's pretty popular in our culture to say, just do it. And... Um, that is not possible without the Lord. And so leaders that are leading well, recognizing they have to have God's help. One of the signs that I just kind of look for is, um, and I need to work on in my own life, is most leaders who are prayers are aware they need God's energy. If someone is a prayer, it immediately increases my respect for them because I think they're aware that they need God to be a part of it. Just something that I personally look for. Now, again, what do we see in their hearts? Verse 1, and we've already seen this before. Um, 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Kind of summarizing what we've seen because I think it's so important. There's a longing for others, spiritual maturity and growth. And one of the things I love it, um, I've had a few opportunities where I'm around leaders when they hear about or find out about um, maybe a failure in someone else's life and they do not take joy in that. There is a grief and a sadness and a humility when they hear things about that. In fact, when um, I was talking to different people about what they look for in leadership, Lynn Kitchens actually said one of the things that she has seen and been impacted by in leadership is that their leaders that have impacted her have been connected to their devotion to God's calling and desiring to see her discover God's calling. She was able to see in them the fact that they longed for her to experience the spiritual growth and maturity that they were pushing her towards. That is our goal and something we should just be kind of listening for as we look at organizations and individuals to follow. Kind of continuing on so we can round out the list. Um, what are some of these goals? That their hearts may be encouraged. That is the goal, that their hearts may be encouraged. And one thing that I wrote down is that um, something that doesn't help me is, um, and it's a little connected to what we've talked about before, is when I feel like a leader is telling me things that I, this is totally a random word, just call fluffiness. It, like there's nothing to sink my teeth into. Oh, you're so sweet. Jesus loves you. And I want to go, I am not sweet all the time. And Jesus does love me, but frankly, life is hard. And when you've kind of given me this pat on the head that says, your sweet Jesus loves me, I'm like, that is not encouraging to me. Because I need a little more than that. Right now, I know Jesus loves me, but I don't really feel like it. And so if you could help me engage with that a little more. Like, life is, <laughs> life is too hard. Sometimes fluffiness really just is, is not what I, I it just, like, it just doesn't help me. Like, I want someone that's going to get in my face and say, and Jesus loves you, and I'm going to help walk through this with you because I know your heart is hurting and I am going to step in with you into this toil and struggle and I'm going to walk in this with you in a way that we are going to see God encourage your hearts. Incredibly valuable to me. What else? Their hearts are knit together in love. I love leaders that want to see other people connect with each other. They are not concerned with people only liking them. They're not intimidated if they aren't invited to every party, every everything. They want other people to connect and love. They want those relationships to be built. What else? They are looking for individuals to be able to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That is what good leaders are about. And to be honest... It's going to take more than five minutes to get that. And sometimes in our culture, we think that's going to happen in five minutes, and leaders can say, five minutes a day to whatever. And, and in some things, maybe that's worked. And you may be in a season where different things in your family and your life are going on. I'm not saying that five minutes is not, I mean, if you have newborn twins, five minutes is more than fine, to be honest, for you to pull aside. But for the most part, five minutes a day or one time a week just going to a group activity 
is not going to give you the riches and the full assurance of who Christ is. He is eternal and way too big for that. And it's fabulous, but I want leaders that are going to press me beyond clicking on the e-Internet Explorer and it immediately popping up. Because generally speaking, it's going to take that to experience. I mean, I've been studying this passage for how long? And I'm still on my bed doing my final review and going, oh my gosh, that's so great. Totally hadn't noticed that. That is discovering, by God's grace, more and more of the riches of full assurance and understanding of who Christ is. We've been talking about this throughout our whole series. Um, leaders do not want individuals to be deluded with plausible arguments. Um, and as women, again, um, sometimes we just want a fun story, but we need to be challenged to use our brain to think about things. Certainly, we also... Um, See the good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And this is, um, these phrases, good order and firmness of your faith in Christ, in the original language, actually refer to a military analogy. It's a military troop that is in order and able to stand firm when the attacks come. Implication, good leaders understand life is a battle and it's hard. And they're equipping people not for spa days, though occasionally we get those. That's heaven. This is not largely one spa day after another. It is one day of battle after another. And good leaders are aware of that and are equipping individuals for that. So, as a leader, where do you begin and where do you go back to? Why did Paul do this? Why do we do this? Why do the leaders we follow do this? In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, I think it explains it particularly well, and it's actually connected to what we just studied last week, these verses here in Colossians. Listen to why Paul says he does what he does. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where does it begin as a leader? It begins by what we talked about last week, delving into the fullness of who Christ is and being so controlled and moved and changed by who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That's where it starts. That out of the overflow of that, you are dying for other people to know Jesus and to experience the same reconciliation that you have gotten. And in those moments of toil and struggle, when the battle is hard and when you want to drop kick the whole entire thing, which there are moments that we all want to do that, you say, why am I getting up to struggle and labor for one more day? And you go, oh yeah, the love of Jesus and who he is is so mesmerizing. And the gift of reconciliation has so 
touched me that I am dying for other people to experience the same thing. I'm sure for Jennifer Rogers, there are a lot of things around her house that could have gotten done this week. I am sure that there have been mornings that her kids did not want to get up and get out, the, out of the building. And do you want to know why she's done it? Do you want to know why she's been at kids camp this week? She did not know I was going to say this, so she's probably mad at me. But I know Jennifer, and do you want to know why? The love of Christ matters more to her than does a calm morning at home. And she has been so touched by the reconciliation that the thought that she could come up here and walk into classes and tell some kids about Jesus so that they get to be new creations and experience that same love is why she does it. And to more, and that's, that is the motivation of a leader. You've been so gripped by Jesus, and you're longing for others to be gripped by Jesus, that by the grace of God, you get up and you toil and you struggle one more day because of the hope that one more person will get to taste of who Jesus is. Know that fullness of reconciliation and just um, be changed by it. That's the thing that leaders are moved by. Not as much, though they're great, the gifts and the cards and the, when people say nice things about you. What gets you more than anything is when you hear through the grapevine that someone that you got to be a part of their life is still walking with Jesus X number of years down the road. That's what gets you going. Because Jesus is fabulous and you want other people to experience that as well. Let me pray. Lord, my guess is that for each one of us in this room, even the ladies I don't know, you have been merciful enough to put leaders in our life that have exemplified these characteristics and have been willing to toil and struggle. I know there are lots of them who have toiled and struggled on my behalf, and I am so grateful. Lord, I pray for each one of us in the room that we would not be um, nitpicky about leaders by any stretch of the imagination, but that you would give us some discernment and wisdom as we um, live our lives and partner with organizations and Bible studies and different people. Would you give us discernment so that we don't unintentionally end up putting ourselves or our family or our friends in a situation that um, might be damaging? Would you just help us do that with great discernment and with great humility? Father, would you help each one of us look at ourselves honestly and um, be willing to be taught about some things in our lives that need to be tweaked in our in our own leadership and receive and love the warnings that you have for us and the, the hard things that you want us to change. And God, in those moments for each one of us, when it is tiring, because it is, would you remind us that why we're doing this is because the love of Christ has touched us and controls us and motivates us to want to struggle for one more day for just the possibility that someone else might be able to taste of Jesus and experience the most fabulous gift of reconciliation that he um, has given to us. God, that um, may that and the things that have been in this passage just be so um, driving and consuming for us as we lead and influence the people around us. Um, Father, I pray for those leaders who will be up here one more day at Kids Camp tomorrow. Would you give them strength and energy and boldness and love as they speak to kids of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ? And would you open the hearts of every sweet child and adult who walks onto this campus to believe in Jesus Christ?
It's in his name we pray. Amen.